Herb Alpern, the Tijuana Brass, and Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest in this edition of Fangraphs Audio is the managing editor of Fangraphs, recently returned from Phoenix, Arizona, or the greater Phoenix area, Dave Cameron. A brief note to the listener before we begin. If there has been a dearth of episodes of Fangraphs Audio of late, it is because, uh, um, much like Dave Cameron, I myself, Carson Sestouli, the host of Fangraphs Audio, I myself have been away from my home and away from my deluxe home recording studio. Uh, that may continue next week, the 25th to the 29th, as I go to Jupiter, Florida, home not only, uh, or I should say spring training home, not only of the St. Louis Cardinals and Miami Marlins, but also of my grandfather. Like many uh, elderly people, he does not have internet service. So there is a thing right there. Another note, it has become standard practice before Dave Cameron's appearances on Fangraphs Audio has become standard practice to alert the reader uh, as to exactly how much baseball one could expect to be analyzed in what follows. I asked Dave Cameron at the end of our uh, conversation how much baseball he had, in fact, uh, or he thought he had analyzed. And this is what he said. You know, I feel like this is a good 100% week. I feel a little refreshed after getting home and sleeping in my own bed. So I think I was able to creep back to 100%. Specifically, uh, a lot of what Cameron addresses in what follows is the power rankings, the positional power rankings, which have been appearing at Fangraphs um, this week and, and also towards the end of last week. We discussed those, the use of those, what they tell us about uh, this or that, and also the Yankees, what they tell us about the Yankees. New York Yankees, famous New York Yankees. Let us delay no longer, however. Uh, let us go to the episode, which is, in fact, uh, an episode of Fangraphs Audio featuring managing editor Dave Cameron, and which begins right now. sort of long out of necessity does that make sense right you can't really write uh blurbs about 30 teams have it be short right uh well let's uh, i guess let's begin and maybe we'll end by also by talking about the power rankings uh let's see this is what year two of those yes we kicked them off last year and we've uh, i think improved them this year and so okay so maybe start broadly we'll start broadly with what they are and then We'll look at how uh, they're different um, this year and why, I guess, why that made sense to make them different. Well, I think the genesis of the idea last year was that we wanted to do some kind of season preview, but we didn't want to just do the same season preview that every media outlet does and, you know, kind of go team by team and say, here are their players, here's where they think they're going to be good. We kind of wanted to do maybe a more um, in-depth look at, at every player in baseball um, but go at it from a different angle, and we thought maybe doing it by position rather than by team was a good way to do it, and we'll kind of see the compare and contrast within positions, and kind of, you know, if you don't follow a team, you don't, probably don't necessarily know who their their backup is, or whether they're running a platoon, or if they have, you know, some bench guy who's going to be able to contribute, or, you know, how their playing time allocation is going to work, so um, just kind of decided to preview the season from that perspective, and I think, uh, you know, what we did this year is kind of make it a little bit more, um, uh, maybe a little less subjective. Where last year, uh, the authors kind of had to do a lot of the research in terms of, um, you know, expected playing time, expected production, and come up with the calculations on their own. We've kind of automated this year, uh, blending steamer and zips uh, to give us kind of output production 
uh, with, the, with the staff combining their efforts and their intelligence to come up with uh, depth chart projections and so putting together manual depth charts with some pretty good uh, projection system forecasts and, and have used that to create the rankings themselves. And, I, I mean, so so far looking at what we have just in terms of um, the tables, uh, so each piece, I should say, um, you know, you look at the looking at the first base piece right now, uh, written by Matt Clausen. Um, each uh, each piece has a table. So the Reds are number one. Uh, we see Joey Votto, Todd Frazier, Jack Hanahan adds up to 700 plate appearances. Um, we see their collective war. Um, I guess have you been satisfied with this? Uh, what does it tell us? What doesn't it tell us? Yeah, I mean, I think you know uh, the the playing time uh, for each team being at 700 is a little bit of a it's not going to necessarily be true. Batting orders can have some some impact. So if you have a you know a really good hitting uh, first baseman who hits third in the lineup, you can get more that position will get more play appearances than if you have a weaker hitting first baseman at seventh or eighth. Uh, but overall, it seems like the average team at all non-catcher positions gets about 700 play appearances per year. And so we wanted to make sure that uh, we were comparing an apples to apples scale. So we gave every team 700 play appearances at all the non-catcher positions. We gave all the catcher. Uh, team 640 plate appearances for their backstops. Uh, overall, I think it's worked out pretty well. I mean, and there's certainly some uh, quirks we've noticed where guys who play multi-positions can occasionally be rated for too many, too much playing time overall. Uh, like I think Ben Zilrist is projected for 700 plate appearances, which he probably won't get because he's in the in the depth chart at second base and shortstop and right field and even center field. Um, so you know, I think it's not exactly a perfect system, but I think overall. Um, you know, those quirks are, are minor and don't have a huge effect on the system. And I think overall, the, the numbers actually look pretty good. Uh, so, so far as the rankings are concerned, I mean, I'll just ask this broadly. Uh, uh, has anything has anything surprised you about what you've seen so far? Yeah, I mean, I think the discussion today uh, and pointing out now that we've gone through all the position players, uh, at least, you know, not designated hitter, but in the National League, there isn't a designated hitter. So for all National League teams, we've done all their their position players, the Rockies actually come out surprisingly well, uh, you know, ranking, I think, in the top half of almost every position. Uh, maybe the worst ranking was 19th in, at third base. Um, so I think if you're just looking at the raw number of, like, uh, where they stand relative to other teams, uh, 1 through 30 at each position, uh, maybe it would seem like we're underrating uh, the Rockies overall, and maybe they're better than we think. But I think this is one of those important things to note, that the numerical ranking uh, often – is is not that important. I mean, you know, as Jeff Sullivan wrote in his shortstop article, the gap between one and two is as large as the gap between two and 26. So, you know, what you really care about is the actual production and not necessarily the ordinal rank of, of where a team lies. So a team might be seventh, but, you know, not significantly different than a team of 18th. And so rather than just looking at the, the rank uh, and assuming that there's a big gap, you know, I think it would be helpful to look at the range and kind of see uh, you know, where the teams lie overall. And I think in most cases, the Rockies are just kind of middle of the pack, and sometimes that puts them, you know, 7th, sometimes it puts them 13th, sometimes it puts them 17th. Overall, I think their position players are definitely the strength of their team, but they're probably not quite as good as they look from an ordinal right perspective. Right, and, it, yeah, and you, you sort of gestured towards it at the end there. Uh, it should be noted that the Rockies' rotation has not been addressed yet. Yeah, right. So we'll be doing the Rockies pitching staff at the end of the week, and you can imagine that that's going to cancel out a lot of the goodness of their hitters. Right. Um, is is this an effective way? Well, you, you mentioned like the Rockies are, are a surprise not being ranked 19th. How would you? What's the best way to sort of, 
I guess, collate or aggregate all this information looking across all the positions? I mean, is it just to say, you know, go piece by piece and say, here's where my team ranks here, here's where my team ranks here? Yeah, so we'll put up a, a summary of some sort. Uh, probably going to do the position players tomorrow. Uh, you know, that would be Wednesday. Can't promise that it'll be done because I haven't written the post yet, but uh, we'll definitely do some kind of overall summary. Um, I think, you know, you want to be careful. So, like, one of the things that this perspective and looking at it this way and saying, oh, you know, this forecast for X number of wins, uh, there's a, you know, we're just dealing essentially with linear weights. For an individual player, there are certainly interchange between players that we're not going to catch, uh, catch on to. So, you know, if you have three or four good hitters in a row, uh, you know, guys being on base, they're going to hit better with the guys on base. There's a nonlinear um, factor to offensive performance and interaction with other players um, that we're not going to pick up on any of that. So there are certainly more scientific ways to do projections, but I think, you know, if you look at it overall, uh, the linear method of just looking at total team or you know, kind of total performance by all players in an individual context actually does pretty good in approximating overall team performance. So I wouldn't look at it and say this is gospel, the team that grades out with the highest total projected war based on the divisional power ranking of the best team in baseball, but they're probably in the mix. Now, uh, maybe I'm missing something. I, I found a couple of examples of um, true platoons that also seem to be giving their teams uh, a legitimate advantage. Now, the Rays are obviously a special example, and, and most of that has to do with Ben Zobrist, uh, because Ben Zobrist, as you mentioned, Ben Zobrist is getting time at second base, definitely getting time at right field. I don't know if he was projected at shortstop, but I think that uh, he's had success playing there as well. Um, <clears throat> couple of others, though. Uh, Rangers center field uh, between Martin and, and Gentry. From what we know, they'll probably be using something like a platoon. Um, they're, they're ranked decently. Uh, um, athletics third base, I don't know if that's going to be a proper platoon, but uh, Jed Lowry is going to be there, and so is Josh Donaldson. Uh, I, may, maybe I'm missing something. Or does this tell us something about um, – about platoons, maybe, you know, maybe that, or maybe we're in a bad era for platooning. Maybe managers aren't using it as frequently as they have in the past. I mean, I don't think there's any question that platoons have kind of gone away as the pitching staff, size of the pitching staff has grown. I mean, you know, 20 years ago it was a 10-man pitching staff, and then it grew to 11, and now we're at 12, and sometimes even 13. So, you know, the fewer number of bench spots you have, the fewer chances you have to platoon. It's harder to carry guys who are, you know, can only play one position or can only hit one type of pitcher. Uh, so I think uh, the platoons have been marginalized in Major League Baseball. But as you know, there are teams who are who are doing platoons. But I think like the platoons that we're seeing now are kind of the, the uh, non-traditional variety. So you don't see too many. You know, you used to see a lot of first base or DH platoons where you have, you know, the Indians uh, a few years ago had Ben Broussard and Eduardo Perez just kind of share the, the first base DH duties. Um, you know, you'd have like you know a right-handed slugger and a left-handed slugger, and they'd um, share one position. Now, I think what we're seeing is you know teams with guys with positional flexibility. Well, I think we talked about this with the Indians when they acquired Nick Swisher. Is you know he can play from first base, he can play from right field. Uh, they can essentially platoon Drew Stubbs with you know say Jason Giambi makes the team because they have Swisher to move in between the infield and the outfield. So if they want to have you know, Swisher play first base, then Giambi's DHing, uh, then they can take true stubs in right field. But if they want to, you know, move Swisher to the outfield, and uh, they can they can do that. So you can platoon essentially uh, based on having a guy like a Zobrist or a Swisher or one of these guys who plays multiple positions. I think we're seeing that more now because you need bench guys or at least starting guys 
uh, who can play multiple positions in order for platoons to work. And so, so here's a, here's another question I have. In this this surfaced uh, uh, with the White Sox last year. It's something I know I've invoked on the podcast before, um, but I, I guess I guess I don't feel done with the idea yet. And and I think that the positional power rankings bring this up. Last year we saw the White Sox uh, start with basically the season with well I guess they started with Brent Morrell as their third baseman uh, between a combination of ineffectiveness um, we might say wild ineffectiveness and uh, injury Morrell didn't work out I think like Ray Almeido uh, if I'm not mistaken picked up some plate appearances for them at third base um, there were some other options going on too uh, and then they acquired Kevin Euclid who regardless of how he did in the future uh, right. It, it was a smart move at the time, and it, it was a smart move because, you know, even if Euclid put up just rather average numbers, he was going to be a tremendous improvement uh, over uh, over what the White Sox had been running out there. I'm curious, um, what do these power rankings tell us about um, potentially teams that are strong many places but have one or two holes that could be upgraded and therefore uh, serve as a fantastic upgrade for the team as a whole? Yeah, I mean, I don't think there's any question. You know, since the current depth chart, we can't uh, account for future acquisition potential. Uh, but, you know, I think when you look at a team like, say, the Royals, who we released the right field depth charts today on Tuesday, um, and the Royals rate dead last because Jeff Rancourt is terrible. Uh, you know, I think the ability for the Royals, if they contend, which is an if, but if they're contending in the, you know, July, it's unlikely that they're going to continue to roll out a terrible Jeff Rancourt every day. Uh, so most likely they would try and make a move to upgrade over Frank or whether they're capable of doing that or not remains to be seen. But, you know, I think the idea is that if the Royals are, are good or at least decent, uh, then the step chart probably won't reflect their overall season playing time for right field. They'll go get someone better. Um, so I think, you know, there's certainly uh, an advantage to having a, a big hole because it's easier to go from bad to average than it is from average to great. Uh, but at the same time, I think, you know, that stars and scrubs mentality can also be overstated a little bit because it's not that you can just go from bad to average with no effort. You know, a lot of teams uh, with glaring holes end up spending significant prospects at the trade deadline to try and make a move that, um, you know, brings in a guy for a couple months and then do small sample issues. You know, you acquire a guy like Hunter Pence and he doesn't play very well for you or, you know, uh, in, in the Giants' case the year before, they acquired Carlos Beltran and it cost them Carlos, Zach Wheeler. Uh, you know, I don't think they should just look at it and be like, oh, yeah, having a big hole is a huge advantage to your team. What it's really doing is setting you up to overpay for a rental at the deadline, and oftentimes that can be a, a move that your franchise lives to regret. Uh, this uh, positional power rankings exercise, uh, especially um, at the field player level, um, exposes the fact that the Yankees have a number of players injured. Uh, Mark Teixeira, I guess we've projected for about 450 plate appearances. Um, center field, we have we have Curtis Granderson, uh, um, obviously out for a while, sharing time with Brett Gardner. And then in left field, uh, the Yankees, we have uh, Gardner, but then a combination of Juan Fran- uh, Ben Francisco, sorry, not Juan Francisco, because he's uh, excellent, obviously. Uh, ben Francisco, uh, Juan Rivera, you know Ichiro, and now I guess uh, Brendan Bosch is in that particular mix as well, uh, because of his acquisition uh, acquisition in the middle of or end of last week. Um, can you can you maybe talk about the Yankees? I mean, uh, obviously, th- that this has been covered at some length, but I guess maybe talk about the Yankees and their injuries through the prism of of the uh, of this uh, power rankings exercise. 
Yeah, I think you didn't even mention Derek Jeter. He's not even playing in spring training games the last couple of days due to potentially a flare-up with his ankle injury at the end of the season last year. Um, I mean, I think, you know, the interesting thing about the Yankees is that they have a lot of talent that we have absolutely no idea how much these guys are going to play. I mean, Teixeira's wrist injury was reported to be more serious over the weekend, uh, and even rumors that he might need season-ending surgery were... You know, Teixeira could come back in May and get 500 plate appearances, or he could get zero plate appearances. And unfortunately for the Yankees, they don't have a lot of depth. I think part of their um, kind of cutback on spending is that they didn't fill out their bench with, you know, uh, highly productive players like they used to, where they'd have, you know, extra guys just sitting around ready to step in. Uh, now their extra guys are a bit replacement level or slightly above. You start taking away Teixeira for a long period of time, or if Peter has to, you know, miss more time or spend a decent amount of time at DH because of his ankle, uh, you know, that takes a bat away from Travis Hafner and replaces him with Eduardo Nunez. That's a downgrade. You know, with Granderson missing time, he's getting replaced by Francisco and Bosch and, you know, guys who aren't very good. I think the, the problem with the, the Yankees is that they're uh, pretty susceptible to injuries, both with a bunch of old players and a, and a weak bench. And, you know, there's certainly upside there if they're um, playing times uh, recover and they end up, you know, getting a decent amount of, uh, at bats from their regulars. But if they're in a position where they have to be leaning heavily on their reserves, um, this could be a long year for New York. Okay. Um, now, uh, as you noted, uh, pitchers are, of course, are to follow. How are we splitting it up? And, uh, I know that I'm doing, I will be doing relief pitchers. Uh, maybe tell me how to do that. Uh, well, I think you did it last year. <laughs> So hopefully you have some memory of how torturous doing pitchers is. Uh, yeah, essentially I'm doing the starting pitchers because I'm not mean enough to assign that task to anyone else. So I'm taking it on myself. Uh, you're doing relievers because I don't like you. Yeah. Um, uh-huh. I figured you would, you would be able to do that. Uh, no, basically we're going to have to go through, and I think we're going to break those into two posts each so that, you know, because 30 write-ups of pitching staff, and you're talking seven, eight pitchers, and sometimes in the bullpen even nine, uh, you know, that gets really long. So uh, we'll probably have two posts each on the rotation in the bullpen, uh, splitting it in half, 16 through 30 and, and 1 through 15. Um, but I think, you know, we're basically just going to follow the same format of kind of looking at uh, who's in the team's rotation and who their uh, backup starters are. And I think, you know, obviously with pitching, the reserves are more important than they are with hitting because no one gets through a season with five, just five starters. Six starters going to pitch a decent amount, and in a lot of cases, the seventh and eighth starters are going to pitch a, a lot, too. So we can't just say, oh, here's the five starters. Uh, the Nationals are the best pitching staff in baseball. We also have to account for guys six, seven, sometimes eight or nine, depending on their pitching staff with the Rockies. I think we have to count, like, 17 guys because their starters only go two inning reach. So, um, you know, I think it's uh, going to be an interesting exercise, uh, and it's going to require a lot of writing. Yeah, well, so so I'm curious, I mean, when you go ahead and you and you do this, the starters, um, I mean, you, are you going to be trying to account for 162 games started exactly? Yeah, so uh, that's kind of one of the interesting things is in the position players, we we capped everyone's plate appearances at 700 so that every team got the exact same amount. With pitchers, we total innings are going to be the same, about 1,450 innings per team, but uh, innings pitched by starters and innings pitched by relievers are not going to be the same. So we're not going to have this apples to apples comparison where the Tigers rotation might throw a thousand innings and the Rockies rotation might throw seven hundred and fifty innings. Uh and that's you know a normal projection based on the health and durability and in, in the Rockies case usage patterns um of how they're gonna use their pitchers. So uh we're not necessarily gonna look for uh number of starts, but we are going to try and project the innings based on 
um, what we know about the teams, and, and we'll make sure that the uh, innings pitch totals for starters and relievers add up to an actual reasonable number for each team. I remember, let's see, it might be three years ago now. I believe it was Matthew Carruth who wrote the piece, of course, of Fangraphs and Lookout Landing. Um, I believe it was Matthew Carruth who wrote the piece, but uh, it was something, it was titled something to the effect of there is no such thing as a fifth starter, a number five starter. Um, you mentioned that when you're looking at a, a rotation, you need to go seven, eight, nine deep, you know, maybe, maybe more. Um, can, can you, can you, uh, can you talk about maybe uh, Karuth's piece and, and what the, uh, what the, this rankings exercise maybe does or does not reveal um, about that. And, it, and again, it might not have been Karuth, it might have been someone else. No, yeah, I, mean, yeah, I think Karuth definitely did a, a piece on test starters. I think what we see is that, you know, if you have a starting shortstop or a starting first baseman or something like that, I mean, teams do run platoons, but in general you can kind of identify that this guy is going to get the bulk of the playing time in a position. Uh, there are job shares like, you know, my first shifts and uh, Emilio Bonifacio will probably share a second base fairly equally in Toronto this year, but those are pretty rare. I think overall we generally see like a starter backup or a left-right platoon or something along those lines, where in reality the fifth starter job is often, um, you know, kind of a, a combination of multiple pitchers. Um, you rarely see one guy throw 180 innings, you know, pitching every fifth day at the back of a rotation. It's usually... Um, you know, kind of a fringe guy who gets injured a lot or his performance is kind of bumping out of the, the rotation from time to time or he'll be replaced by someone better at midseason. Um, you know, so fifth starter is often an amalgamation of, of multiple people. I know, you know, in some of the movies they'll talk about how some character was kind of a combination of two or three people that the author knew in real life. Uh, the fifth starter is kind of that way where, there's, you know, for most teams it's not one guy. It's, it's three or four guys stringing together. 170, 180 innings over the course of a year. Um, but also part of that is just the fact that the first four guys are going to get injured a decent amount too. So it's not just the fifth starter who's having to give up, um, you know, some of his starts and some of his innings to uh, friends of his. But I think in general, you know, getting through 162 starts is just uh, a project that's too large for just five guys. In reality, we should probably be evaluating every team, at least their top six starters, because everybody's going to use six and, and oftentimes seven or eight starters throughout the year. So so a, uh, a fifth starter is like a Frankenstein pitcher? Kind of. It's a, an amalgamation of many people. Right. If you were to, uh, like like with the uh, Mariners' fifth starter, like whose, like whose arm would you take and, and whose face and legs? Uh, yeah, I think if you were going to take the Mariners' fifth starter – You'd probably want uh, a Rasmo Ramirez in space because he looks like he's 13. Uh-huh. That's kind of fun. Uh, <laughs> and then maybe you'd mix in, like, uh, you know, um, Danny Holtzman's body and, uh, you know, like Brandon Moore's right arm. I think it would be a, a, some kind of. Um, you could take Holtzman. Looking... Yeah, you could have Holtzman's Holson's left arm and then in Maurer's right arm. It could be an ambidextrous pitcher. Right. Or, or I think you'd probably end up with some kind of Indian god. Well, there's yeah, there's that angle. Um, um, here's a question: Do teams um, so like we might account for one through seven or eight or one nine? Do teams maybe you don't have to answer this question? Do, do teams have a sense of their like starters like one through? I mean, obviously they have one through five to begin a season, or, or they generally do, and then they might have a sense of like the two or three pitchers they'd be most likely to call up. I mean, do they have an organizational depth chart or you know? It's like one through thirty. I mean, is, is this a thing that exists that you know of? 
Uh, I don't know that they necessarily order them like one through thirty, but I think you know teams are definitely planning for um, you know beyond just the opening day roster. So I mean, I think you know J.A. Happ is a pretty good example of this in Toronto. He's openly unhappy with the fact that he's not going to start the year in the rotation, even though they're paying him $0.7 million to trade for him last year. Uh, he's got a decent amount of major league experience. Uh, he hasn't been particularly great in his career, but he's been, you know, a serviceable major league pitcher. Um, but he's ticketed for either the bullpen or AAA. But I think the Blue Jays would say if he has a role right now, it's number six starter. It's, you know, he's Brandon Morrow insurance, Ricky Romero insurance, or Josh Johnson insurance. And, you know, considering all the question marks, they have in the rotation, he's going to pitch a decent amount. Like, if he's uh, willing to shut up and just kind of wait for his turn, I wouldn't be surprised if, if J.A. happened and throwing 100 to 150 innings with the Blue Jays started this year, uh, but it's not necessarily written in stone when those innings are going to happen. So there's uncertainty around kind of the beginning of when his job is going to take place. But I think that, you know, major league teams are building out guys like Happ, and especially teams that are contending. They don't want to get put in a position where one arm injury causes them to rush some prospect from A-ball or have, have them bring up some guy who's just not a major league pitcher and says blowing games in the middle of the pennant race. I think they're trying to plan for the inevitable. And so you are seeing them say, okay, maybe this is my sixth starter, maybe that's my seventh starter. And they know that, you know, at some point in April or May, those guys are probably going to get called on. How do how would a team make this decision, right, with a guy like J.A. Happ? <clears throat> uh, you know that he's probably your number six starter. Uh, and yet, you know, it's entirely possible that he'll begin the season at AAA. Uh, meanwhile, I don't know if you can hear that. There's a sirens in the background, so I probably have to make this quick because they're they found they found me out. Um, but meanwhile, you might have uh, Esmil Rogers, who has also started before. Uh, you might have him as a long or middle relief, um, even though maybe you know he's number eight starter or something like that. What what are the what are the sort of um, I guess organizing principles a team uses to decide that that a potential number six through eight or nine starter would be a triple A pitcher versus maybe he's your he's your long man and then you um, you know if should should there be an injury uh, or some or ineffectiveness among your five starters then this is when you take him from the bullpen and you put him in the starting rotation. Yeah, I mean I think it's a little different for each team and it kind of depends on the personnel, but like in Hap's case. Uh, you know, like I mentioned, he's making $3.7 million this year. He's, uh, I think, like a four or five year service time major league pitcher. He's not going to very happily go to AAA. I mean, the Nationals did this with John Landon last year. They paid him $5 million to pitch in AAA. And his agent made a, a lot of noise throughout the year about how unhappy he was with the situation. And, uh, it, you know, it worked for the Nationals from a perspective of, uh, you know, he served his depth and he came up from Strasbourg and needed to be shut down. But I would imagine from Jim Lannon's perspective, it was not a good situation. And I don't think teams are all that interested in, in getting a major league pitcher making a few million dollars and stashing him in AAA. So if you're going to have a guy like that, you almost certainly want him to be in the year in the bullpen or you know maybe go with even a six-man rotation at the start of the year. Do something a little more creative in order to uh, keep him happy. I think the probably the lowest maintenance way to have a number six starter is to do what like, kind of the Tigers are doing, where you have Drew Smiley and Rick Porcello fighting for the fifth job. Uh, you know, Smiley has options left. So, uh, it, Purcell was pitching really well this spring. If they end up not trading him, they can send Smiley to AAA and he might not be happy about it, but he doesn't have the ability to really do anything about it. He doesn't have enough major league service time to start lodging complaints without looking like a whiner. Uh, you know, he's only making the league minimum, so it's not like there's a, a large amount of money that's being wasted by sending him to AAA. I think ideally, uh, you know, each team would have a, a decent young major league prospect 
uh, kind of waiting in the wings who could come up and, and uh, fill the sixth starter job if need be. And that's the kind of guy that you stash in AAA versus if you have, like, you know, a major league veteran or a guy making a decent amount of money, uh, that's one you either probably have to put in the bullpen or, or figure something else out. Right. So, so um, to that point, uh, another pitcher like Trevor Rosenthal, right? Uh, Rosenthal was rather effective, I believe, almost exclusively as a starter, if not exclusively as a starter in the minor leagues last year. Um, clearly has explosive stuff. Um, had success last year um, when he was promoted, but uh, exclusively as a relief pitcher. Uh, how does, you know, we were discussing J.A. Happ, how does that conversation relate to um, how the Cardinals might use Trevor Rosenthal? Yeah, so I think Rosenthal's a little bit of a different scenario, and I think, you know, with guys where, you know, a role of Chapman would probably be seen as the same way, where you're, the team is essentially making a starter or reliever decision. I think with Rosenthal, the Cardinals have made a reliever decision, where Rosenthal's probably not starter depth anymore. Uh, they're not going to put him in the eighth inning role, have him throw one inning all year, and then in July, be like, oh, one of our starters got hurt. Rosenthal, you're moving to the, to the rotation. If you're going to have a six starter type, uh, he's not going to be pitching high leverage innings at the end of a game because then you're going to have to reshuffle your whole bullpen and he's not going to be stretched out. Uh, I think, you know, with those types of pitchers, it's more of a, are we going to start him all year? Are we going to relieve him all year discussion rather than having him bounce back and forth? So I don't think you can really see Rosenthal as starting pitching depth for the Cardinals anymore, um, considering that they're probably going to make him maybe their primary setup guy, Jason Mott. Uh, I think he's going to end up just being a reliever this year. And, you know, depending on how good he is, we'll probably be having a discussion just like Rodrigo Chapman now. Uh, is, you know, will he ever move into the, the rotation or will he be so good as a reliever that that's just where his career heads? Is this kind of also the, uh, besides Chapman, like the Niftali Feliz, Daniel Bard class of pitcher? Kind of, yeah. I mean, you know, with Feliz and Bard and Sale, uh, last year all of the conversions were made in spring training. Uh, you know, and this was, you know, uh, a spot where it was a decision that was made to move them from the bullpen into the rotation, but they weren't necessarily starting the year in the bullpen and then transitioning midseason. Uh, you know, we did see the Mariners do that with the Sashi Yukuma last year. Uh, there are teams that will move guys from the bullpen to the rotation. Chris Medlin uh, for the Braves uh, started the year in the bullpen, eventually ended as a starter. But that's not the norm, and I think those guys weren't working, uh, you know, set-up type innings. They were pitching as long relievers or middle guys going multiple innings at a time. Um, you know, I think if you're going to groom a guy as a sixth or seventh starter, uh, you can't really have him doing one-inning performances in the bullpen too often. You know, Earl Weaver uh, used to say that if you want to bring along a, a young starting prospect, uh, you know, he would put him, he would employ, employ him as a left, or sorry, as a long reliever. Do we do we have teams doing that exactly anymore? Not really. I think uh, maybe the last one I can remember being broken in in that way was probably Johan Santana with the Twins. Uh, where he was a Rule 5 pick, and so he was basically used as a uh, mop-up guy his first year. But then even, you know, once he showed uh, that he was, you know, a pretty good Rule 5 pick and started uh, pitching well out of the bullpen, uh, the Twins kept him there for a while before they moved him to the rotation. And I remember there was actually a free Johan Santana movement when he was uh, lights out out of the bullpen, and, you know, it seemed to be taking a while for the Twins to convert him back into starting. Um, you know, I think he's the last guy I can remember who really came up and kind of developed as a a middle reliever before moving to the rotation full-time. I think in general, nowadays, it's a little tough for teams to um, kind of walk that line where if a guy does have some stuff out of the bullpen, there's almost instantly kind of that, you know, if it ain't broke, don't fix it 
mentality where maybe he gets pigeonholed as a reliever. And, you know, I think we, we saw the Mariners rush Brandon Morrow to the major leagues, and all of a sudden it was a question of whether he's a reliever, he's a starter, and they bounced him back and forth, and he never really found success, and they shipped him to Toronto, uh, you know, for pennies on the dollar. I think that there's a, a bit of a risk here where if you bring up a, a top prospect and kind of use him in a relief mold, um, you know, you might not ever be able to get him back into the rotation. Right. Okay. Uh, listen, you've uh, nearly fulfilled your um, obligation to Fangraphs Audio for this week. Uh, I'm curious as though uh, you just got back from Arizona yesterday. Of course, I, I saw you yesterday. Yeah. Um, you um, – in Arizona. That's where I saw you. I'm not in, I'm not, yeah. I'm not at your house in North Carolina. Very, yeah. very early yesterday. Yes, it was very early. And we did uh, – we actually gave a ride to – a <laughs> to a um, not a young woman, you know, I don't know, middle middle aged woman, middle aged, yeah, lady. Uh, she was not. She was not very awake or very sober. I'm not sure which one was true. Maybe uh, both. combo package, yeah, whatever it was. Uh, yeah. I would say her. She was not working at uh, peak performance. <laughs> is, that, is that reasonable? No, she was a replacement level direction giver. Yeah. Yes. She did not know her airline. That's a fact. The um, you know, that's funny. Um. Uh, right. So uh, you got back from Arizona yesterday. You were there for, what, uh, eight, ten days, something like that? Eleven days. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, oh, my goodness. Uh, <clears throat> reflections on uh, – this is more subjective, of course. Reflections on Arizona. Like uh, if we say that the people listening to this, um, um, besides having little regard for their ears um, and their souls, uh, if we say that they are probably the, the sort of person um, who likes to – you know, do more than just watch, you know, a couple major league games every year. Uh, they're interested either in following their team specifically or they, they like baseball generally. D- do you have a sense now, you know, you've been going to Arizona for, for a while, four, five, six years, something like that, maybe longer. Uh, of a sense how best to use Arizona, how best to, uh, I guess, uh, you know, how many days to go down there, what to what to do, how to, how to sort of use that area? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think it depends on, you know, kind of what you're traveling with. So, you know, like, this, for us, or at least for Appleman and I, we got there for the favorite analytics conference, uh, you know, a week ago Thursday, um, or two weeks ago this coming Thursday, uh, you know, it was mostly a business trip where, you know, we were there for a conference and then we were there for the staff weekend and, uh, you know, there was a lot of logistical things going on and so, um, if you're traveling with your friends, you're going to do it a lot differently or if you're taking your spouse. I mean, I think part of the reason that I, uh, was anxious to get home as I missed my wife and being home, being gone for 11 days is, you know, not something I'm accustomed to. And I, I know people who travel for a living, obviously, a lot of B writers and, you know, major league teams are away from their families for a lot longer than this. I'm, I'm not very good at it. I, I missed my wife. I missed my house. I didn't really like being on the road for nearly two weeks. Um, but I think if you're, you know, if you're traveling for a shorter period of time or you're traveling with your loved ones and so you don't have to miss them, uh, that can be some really neat things. I think we, uh, you know, Appleman and I, uh, road trip up to Sedona with Eno Saris because his mother lives in Sedona and we uh, went for a nice hike and had a good meal at Cafe Elote up there and so there's certainly things to do in Arizona uh, beyond just baseball um, the, the one thing I would recommend for anyone going to Arizona is bring a lot of sunscreen because dear God it's hot and I'm not really made for the heat I gotta be honest I don't know how Keith Law was there year round it was March and it was already too hot for me uh, it was, I think it was of, of the four years that I've been there. These last four years, when we've done the, the FanGraphs staff trip, I think this had the hottest days uh, of any of the previous. I, I remember one a couple years ago. It was like 99, so I think this yeah. might not have been the hottest, but it was it was hot, and you know, like uh, because of the kind of rise in popularity of a few stadiums that happen to have shade. Yes, uh, you know when you're bringing. 
30 people to the ballpark, it's hard to get tickets to those games. So we ended up in ballparks that do not have shade, and that's, you know, a good time to be had by all. How would you – what are your shade rankings uh, in terms of, uh, you know, like top three or five uh, stadia there? Uh, yeah, so basically the, you can almost break it down by when it was built. So the new parks have shade and the old ones don't. <laughs> so Salt River Fields has lots of shade. Uh, there's a significant portion of the, the seated seats at Salt River are covered. Uh, the concourse is large. You can see the field from the concourse. There's probably more shade at Salt River than there is anywhere else, which is also one of the reasons why Salt River sold out pretty much every day we were there um, and, you know, leads in attendance basically every year uh, since it was built. Um, you know, but I think all, almost all of the newer parks, uh, Goodyear actually have one decently shaded section on the third base side, uh, and it isn't super well attended because it's pretty far out from Phoenix and the Reds and Indians aren't huge draws. So if you're looking for a stadium that has some shade, you know, there's a section on the third base side that, um, gets some shade and you can actually get tickets to, um, out in Goodyear. Uh, but the older parks, you know, Phoenix Municipal, uh, Tempe Diablo, um, you know, some of these parks, they're, they're not so well shaded. Uh, and you know, I think we, we went up to Camelback on Saturday, which is a newer park and was probably built incorrectly. So it stares right into the sun and there's basically no shade in the entire ballpark. Yeah, so of warm. the 2,000 people that were there, 90% of them were standing in the concourse and almost no seats were taken because no one really wanted to sit there and fry. Yeah, that was, uh, that was a, that Camelback Ranch is where the Dodgers and, uh, White Sox. White Sox, but we saw the White Sox and A's there. And uh, I, I will, I will absolutely commend the uh, aesthetically the design of the of the place, um, but in terms of practical use. Uh, yeah, they really just they, they built it in the wrong direction. Like if they had flipped it, and you know the outfield was where the uh, the stands are, and the stands are where the outfield was, and just flipped it so that the sun is at your back, then you know the the press box and the luxury boxes would create some natural shade for the uh, seats down below, but because they built the thing staring right into the sun, uh, everybody just sits there and gets burned. Yeah, and to go back, you, you did mention Goodyear, where the where the Indians and Reds play um, as a uh, as a, as one to choose. There there is a shade down the left field line or, or third base line. Uh, also on the first base side, uh, we that's where we sat. And first of all, it wasn't that hot because, as you mentioned, the problem with Camelback said it's built looking at the sun. Goodyear is away from the sun. Secondly. Uh, starting about the sixth or seventh inning, the shade creeps down, or I mean, it creeps right. down the whole game. But uh, eventually, right. the last three innings, we were covered, and that was yeah. uh, that was very pleasant. Yeah, right. I mean, I think you know, uh, we you know, we went to uh, I guess you went to the Arizona State game Friday night. We went to Peoria on Friday night for the Mariners Netherlands uh, exhibition game, um, and uh, you know that was awesome because it was 70, 75 degrees, and obviously the entire uh, stadium was shaded at that point because the sun had basically gone down. Uh, I would recommend highly that if you're in Arizona and there are night games going on, perhaps plan a day event that allows you to, you know, be indoors and in the air conditioning and go to a night game instead. It is a far more enjoyable experience yeah. to go to an evening game uh, than it is to go to a day game in Phoenix. And you saw Vladimir Ballantin hit a uh, giant home run, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, a, a massive home run off of John Garland, which was less impressive because it was off John Garland. Yeah. No, that's true. Okay. Uh, now you have, uh, I believe you're, I believe we're done here, but, um, do you have any sense of, of, uh, how much or, or, or uh, baseball you have or how, you know, how you've done it in terms of analyzing baseball? 
you know, I feel like this is a good 100% week. I feel a little refreshed after getting home and sleeping in my own bed. So I think I was able to creep back to 100% life. Okay, that's good. It's good to be back. It's good to be back. Uh, we will talk to you uh, next week. We'll be back then. Uh, in the meantime, thank you, uh, Dave Cameron, managing editor of Fangraphs. Thank you. All right, that's Dave Cameron. As I say, the managing editor of Fangraphs. Uh, I'm Carson Stooley. This has been Fangraphs Audio. Mm-hmm.